dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on that day that he visits us. I'm always so amazed when I prepare how much God encourages me. And I found these verses incredibly encouraging uh, as I was preparing this week. There's a logic. There's always a logic in the Scripture. And if you just look a little bit, you can understand the logic. Here's the logic of um, of what Peter says. He does two things. He says, first of all, look inward and see some things about yourself. And then he urges them, secondly, look outward. And see some things about how you can live. So the, the inward part is this. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners in this world, as exiles, to abstain from these things, sinful desires. So look inside yourself and see what is sinful in you and abstain from that. That's the first thing we do. The second thing he says then in the, in the, in the, in the outward sense is live a, such a good life. This is the challenge, isn't it? Live such a good life that even the pagans, those that disagree with you and say, those uptight religious Christians, they're always putting their stuff on me. Now, that's the kind of culture we live in, isn't it? Oh, Christians are the ones that disagree with everyone. They're the ones that discriminate against people that are different. Christians, don't be like them. Well, Peter is saying, well, actually, live such a good life that even those that disagree with you and object to your worldview, in the end, they're going to have to admit that there's something profound about how you've chosen to live. That's what Peter's saying. So there's the inward and there's the outward. And he begins by kind of focusing us again on our eternal home. And he says, if you want to live like this, remember that you are in exile. Remember that you are a foreigner. That this world, as pleasant as it is, is not your home. It's not your home. It's temporary. This body has got 70 or 80 years, and then it's finished. It runs out. All of our bodies do, all right? And when you're in your 20s, you think your body's never going to give out. And now I'm in my late 50s, and I'm finding there's some parts of my body that are giving out. And that's, just in the, that's, that's how it is for all of us, and that's, that's life, isn't it? But he's saying, he reminds us, Don't think this is what it's all about. And so how should that motivate us? Well, it means that practically we live our lives to the full. We give it absolute horns, but we don't settle down too much here on this earth. We don't give ourselves entirely just to make money, get a bigger house, live the most luxurious life that we can. Peter's saying, actually, if you're a foreigner... If you're an alien, you realize that those things can be enjoyed, but actually that's not the end goal. The end goal is our heavenly home. And so we do the best that we can right now. We work hard. We enjoy the gifts that we have. We um, are concerned for the planet. How about all the stuff that's been happening at the COP conference? And everyone's like, our hearts are going up and down, you know? Are they going to make any changes? Yes, they are. No, they're not. We thought there were going to be big changes. No, they're going to be not as big as we hoped. And all these kind of things. Of course, we must take care of the planet. We want to leave something good to our kids. But we're not excessively concerned with those things because we know that this is not our final destination. So Peter says, if you want to live well now, keep that in mind all the time. 
It's not your final destination. The second thing that he points them to in, those, in that first verse is that there's a battle that's going to continue as long as you live, as long as you and I live. There are always sinful desires that wage war with our souls. That's what Peter's saying. There's always things that we are fighting against. And um, in other words, there's a fight of faith that we have to fight. And it's good that we remember this on Remembrance Day. And throughout history, Christian history, from the, right from the beginning, there have always been Christians who've tried to teach this and say this, that you can actually get rid of your flesh altogether. That because of what Jesus has done in your life, you don't have to sin in this life. Right? And there's, the, there's still people today, I've heard that many times, that people say, oh no, Jesus, the blood of Christ has taken all our sins, so actually we shouldn't sin now, and, and we don't have to sin. That's called sinless perfection. And actually, it's not, it's not biblical, right? <laughs> and if you try and live like that, it leads to hypocrisy in your life, because you have to pretend that you are not sinning. And secondly, it leads to depression. I've met people like that, and they're generally not very happy because they're always missing the mark, and they have to admit to themselves that they're missing the mark. So this is, leads to de depression. But Peter doesn't say that. What does he say? He doesn't say you're not ever going to sin right now in, the, in this body which has fallen. What does he say? He says, abstain from sinful desires. I had a look in the dictionary. Abstain means this. Uh, to abstain means to restrain yourself from doing something. Perhaps, occasionally, like me, you have to abstain from food. Yeah? You, you, you say, okay, and I'm not going to have some of that or as much of that as I would like. I'm going to abstain because I know it's long-term it's going to be good for me. So what is Peter saying? He's saying, actually, as you fight this fight of faith, there's some things that are waging within you still. Even though Jesus has saved you, there's a sinful part of your nature that's still trying to entice you. And you have to abstain from that. And as you do that, you begin to fight a good fight, and it's called the fight of faith. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of this, uh, we can start in some obvious places where we think of sinful, sinful desires. You know, people generally will go to things like sexual purity, all those kind of things. Abstain from sinful desires. But I, I, I want to say that I think Peter had a whole lot more things in mind when he was talking about sinful desires. So here are some things that I think we should, as we fight the good of fight of faith, we should learn to abstain from. Can I give you some, just for, just for fun, this, they're alphabetical. Just for fun. Here we go. What about arrogance? <laughs> what about boastfulness? Uh, what about complaining? <laughs> What about deceit? What about envy? What about fraud? What about hate? Perhaps impatience. <laughs> We're going to have something with J, all right? Jealousy. Abstain from jealousy. What about laziness or moaning? There's one with N. Moaning. Abstain from moaning. Sinful desire of moaning. Or being overly negative. I can do that. I can be overly negative. That's sinful. It's basically saying, God, you don't you're not really in control. 
and I'm going to worry because my worry is going to add to the solution. <laughs> that's, what it, that's what really it's saying, isn't it? What about being obstinate, always wanting to get your own way and not being able to just let other people have their opinion validated? What about prayerlessness, being quarrelsome, resentful, spiteful, telling tales? We could go on and on, can we? But we normally go to sexual purity. <laughs> you know, that's the big thing. Well, I think Peter had a whole lot of other things in mind when he said, I want you to abstain from these things that are at war within you and that are wage war against your soul. Look inward. Have a good look and say, what do I need to abstain from by the power of the Holy Spirit? They are mainly, mainly things of attitude, aren't they? They're mainly things of how we speak or think about other people. And uh, all of these things are birthed out of that place in us, that fallen place that tends to do the wrong thing. As God, by the power of the Spirit, is transforming us to be more like Jesus and we are born again, there's still some part of us that tends to want to do the wrong thing. And Peter says, fight the good fight. Wage war against that part of yourself. And here I want to lift up your eyes because you might say, well, and that's, thanks very much. That's quite depressing. Well, I'm not trying to depress you this morning. Here's the good part. As we fight the good fight of faith, we are called always to remember that we are covered by the righteousness of Jesus. Amen. You are covered by the righteousness of Jesus. As you put your faith, as you've put your, your, your faith into what Jesus has done, God looks on you and he doesn't see the war raging inside of you. He sees the precious blood of his perfect son on your life. It's called the covering righteousness of Christ. Why is I'm saying it's so important for you to remember that as you fight the good fight of faith? Because if you do not, every time you feel tempted to give into one of those things, you're going to feel you're going to feel bad about yourself. You're going to feel like I can't do this. And we are only defeated when we give into those temptations. Being tempted is not a sin. And so we have to believe as we, and we have to remember as we fight this good fight that all of us are covered by the blood of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And that is what God sees on your life, and that's what God sees on my life. I love this amazing verse from Philippians 3, verse 9. Remember Paul, he's talking to the Philippians, and um, he's kind of trying to tell them that actually he's got, he's, he's got some kudos in this world in terms of what they value. They're all Jewish people, and they value the Jewish tradition highly. And so Paul says this to them, um, talking about his own qualifications amongst them as a Jewish person. And he says this in verse 3 of chapter 3, if someone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh. I have more. It says like, okay, if you want to boast, let's boast. Here we go. Here's my, here's my deal. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee perfectly kept the law. As for zeal, someone with passion, I persecuted the church. Anyone that disagreed with me, I killed them, which he did. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That's what he says about himself. He says, if I look at my own life 
according to what the Jewish tradition teaches, I have been perfect, I have been faultless. And then he says this amazing thing. He says, I count all of that as dung, as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. And then he says these profound words. He says that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that I have kept, that I've, by observing rules and living, not that kind of righteousness that I can say I did, but on a righteousness that is in, through faith in Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He's saying all that stuff is nothing compared to knowing Jesus and putting all my trust in what he has done. And so that's why Revelation, the book of Revelation, remember, it encourages us. It says, they overcame the evil one by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Can I just point you to this? It always starts with the blood of the Lamb. <laughs> It always starts with what Jesus has done. Our testimony is just speaking about what Jesus has done. I've heard too many testimonies of people, and you think, is this really about God or is this really about you? Is this like subtle boasting about what you've done, or is this really pointing people to Jesus, to the blood of Christ and what Christ has done for you? Good testimony speaks about what Jesus has done for us through his blood. And always points us back to Jesus, the source of every good thing. They overcame the evil one by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And so that's the first thing that Peter does. He says, Inward, look inwardly. Admit there's a, a, way, a war waging. Abstain from these things. Abstain by the power of the Spirit. And then he says this. Secondly, look out. This is the positive part. He says, look out and live such a good life among the pagans that they accuse you of doing wrong. They might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. It's a profound thing. He's saying, live a life that's so positive, that's so life-affirming, that even though some people disagree with you, in, in his day it was the pagans, the Romans, they didn't think anything like the Christians did. They didn't live a lifestyle, anything like the Christians did. Peter's saying, if you live like this, even those people that say you've got it all wrong, they're going to have to admit in the end that there's something profoundly good about your life and what you've, how you've chosen to live. That is a great lesson for us in the 21st century. I've heard this so many times over. People criticize Christians for being narrow-minded and rigid, they say Christians are the ones that stop everyone having fun. <laughs> you know, they're all miserable people who don't have any fun, and they're all moralistic. And anyone that disagrees with them, they discriminate against those people. I've heard this over and over and over again. You know, if you really want to be free, if you really want to have a good life, don't become a Christian because you're just going to get uptight. You're just going to be kind of like all stuff put on you. Well, it's exactly... Um, the opposite for what, in what Peter encourages us here. He says that it's possible by the power of the Spirit to live in such a way that even those that oppose you in their worldview have to admit that there's something wonderful about how you live. That's, that's a profound thought, isn't it? 
Now, in his day, it was quite uh, specific. There's two guys, if, you, if you're interested in history like I am, you can read some books. You can go to the bookstore, Waterstones, if you want to read about early Christian history. There's a, there's a Roman historian called Tacitus. There's another one called Suetonius. And you, they wrote about the emperors. And as they wrote about all the emperors, they said a lot about Christians. So if you're interested, you can go read for yourself. But one of the things that Christians were accused of in the early days is um, they were accused by Tacitus and Suetonius of being cannibals. Cannibals? Yeah, cannibals, because they didn't understand that when Christians were speaking about eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus, they were talking about breaking bread. They were talking about a ceremony that Jesus had instructed them to observe. And so for people like Tacitus and Suetonius, they say, well, these Christians, they're really weird. They're cannibals. Early Christians were, were also accused of being incestuous. Why? Because they spoke openly, freely about loving their brothers and their sisters. You can read it for yourself. I'm not making it up. This is, this is written by Roman historians. What was the famous one that most people, most people know? Nero, the mad, the mad one who went completely bonkers. In AD 64, Rome burnt down. And so he, Christians were a convenient target to blame the fire in Rome uh, for because in the early days, the Christians did believe that the end of the world would come by fire. There would be a purifying fire that came at the end. And we know that because Peter says it himself in 2 Peter 3, his second letter. He says this in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So Christians were a convenient target. Nero said, you see, it's the Christians. Look, end of the world, they want the end of the world. They, they, they set Rome on fire to bring the end of the world. So my point is this, Peter is writing all of this in this kind of early century context where people didn't agree with Christians at all and uh, actually persecuted them profoundly. And so today, there are still people who criticize Christians for how Christians think and how, what they believe. And largely, much of the criticism comes from what has been shown on the media, which is inevitably negative coverage of some extreme part of the church somewhere in some part of the world doing some weird thing or showing some strange teaching or, uh, or showing obvious hypocrisy in a particular area. And then people say, see, all the Christians, they like that. Look at that. That's what it means to be a Christian. In the meantime, there are millions, billions of people, ordinary Christians, just living out their lives as best as they can, honoring God, moment by moment, Day by day. So what is our response to be to these kind of pressures in the 21st century? Well, I want to put it to you this, uh, this very simple thing, and I'm landing on this, is that we respond like the early church did. How do they respond? Well, they try to be sensible. They, they try to live out what was right and true and, and in how they treated everybody. And if you want to talk about human rights and you want to talk about women's rights and you want to talk about rights for slaves, and you want to talk about all these things that are so important to 21st century people. My friends, if you're really honest, you have to look back at the roots. And where did the root come from? The root came from Christians. 
The root came from people that were set free by Jesus, and they said, it doesn't matter if we're slave or free or Greek or male or female or Gentile, we are all one in Christ, and every human being has dignity. That is the root of what we enjoy in the 21st century. Christianity has been the root of every good thing that we see in the West. And we shouldn't apologize for that. Shouldn't give in to the pressure that is being undermined now. And the, the second thing, we've got to do what is right. We've got to live as best as we can. And then, who was it? Uh, one of the guys saying, don't worry. Don't worry, be happy. What was his name? Don't worry. Bobby McFerrin. He had something right. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you can't really worry too much about what other people think of you as a Christian. You can't. Don't worry. <laughs> it doesn't really matter at the end. The important thing, says Peter. What is Peter says the most important thing? The most important thing in your life is that people can see in your life good works that are obvious to everyone. And I want to put it to you, here are the good works that, uh, that we need to make obvious to everyone. And I love this. Remember, we did a study of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5 says this. Remember, I talked about this, this waging of a war of the flesh within us. But here's the cool thing. By the power of the Spirit, this is what God begins to produce in us that is obvious to everyone else by the power of the Spirit. Do you remember Galatians 5? The Spirit, the, the fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Therefore, those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh. There it is again, that waging of the war inside. It's been crucified. It's been put to death. Waging war. Uh, uh, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Do you want to you be different in the 21st century? you want to live well? you, you, you want to live a life that people, even though they disagree with you, have to admit is full of love and patience and goodness and kindness and self-control? Peter says, Paul says, against those things there's no law. People can say what they like. The evidence is there. It's the fruit. Live well. Live well by the power of the Spirit and keep in step with Him. And lastly, Peter says, he says, when you're living like that, there comes a day where God visits you and becomes obvious that God is upon you. And we all live for those days, don't we? where the church is kind of strong and people can obviously see the glory of God. And there, the New Testament is, there are many, many examples of it. I'm just going to mention two. The first one is in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus heals a widow, uh, a widow's son who's dead. He raises him from the dead. And it says this in verse 16. It says, after this amazing event, they were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared amongst us, they said. God has come to help his people. It's obvious. We can see it. Here he is. God has come to help his people. And it says the news of Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Amen. 
There are obvious times when it's just plain to everybody that God is there. My friends, I want to encourage us as we, as we go forward into the future that this church will become a place where people say, obviously, God is there. God is amongst them. There you can find love and acceptance, whatever your background, whatever your history. There you can find forgiveness. There you can find peace. There you can find mercy. At that church, God is there. What a beautiful testimony that would be. God is there amongst them. When you go there, you might find it a little strange. You might be a little nervous when you come. They do some weird stuff occasionally. But you know what? I can't argue. God is there. It's full of love and joy and peace and kindness and self-control. And I feel part of a family and I feel loved. God is there. Can't argue with others. And then there's a second amazing, you see, that's the kind of miraculous part, which is really cool, isn't it? We, we want the miraculous. Of course we do. But there's the, also this very powerful thing that happens in Jerusalem where all the elders, you know, all the, the, the intellectual ones, <laughs> They're sitting around in a circle, and they're talking about the amazing things that have happened out of the church in Jerusalem into all the Gentile communities, all the non-Jewish communities. And Acts 15 says this in verse 14, the whole assembly, all these kind of people that like to talk, you know, all the intellectual ones, they're all sitting around, and they're talking. And it says the whole assembly, all these elders and these, these guys, became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. There's this amazing testimony of God being right in their midst and doing powerful things. And then they all agree, all these kind of probably conservative traditional people, they all agree and they say when they had finished, James, James is the brother of Jesus, the most Jewish of, the, he, he, when you read his writing, he's like the most Jewish of the Jew, Jewish guys. He says, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God intervened to choose a people from amongst the Gentiles. That includes every one of us. And the words in the prophet are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things non, known from long ago. So there's this acknowledgement, even from this traditional group of people, that God has done an amazing thing amongst the Gentiles, and you cannot argue about what God has done. It's evidence to all. So my friends, as I finished, life is about fighting the good fight. Absolutely. It's about taking hold of yourself. You know, I love David. When he was feeling down, he didn't kind of like wallow in depression, did he? He spoke to himself. <laughs> and you can read in the Psalms, he says, hey, awake my soul. Don't be so downcast. Who's he speaking to? He's not speaking to some soul out there. He's speaking to himself. He's saying, David, get a grip. Don't be so down. I'm speaking to myself now, and I'm saying, you are not going to be depressed for 
much longer. I'm going to praise God, and actually I'm going to speak about his work in my life, and he's going to lift me out of this pit. David speaks to himself. We can learn from that, isn't it? Why do I um, got distracted now? What was I talking about? Oh, yes. It is about waging war against the flesh and taking responsibility and abstaining. Yeah, it's all about that. But it's also about living a life so joyful, so full, so full of God's grace that people who disagree with you cannot say, you know, I don't like, I don't like what you say about Jesus, but man, there's something about your life that actually I have to admit, that's pretty cool. And that, that at the end of the day, Peter's saying, against those things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, justice, self-control, there's no law. And when we live like that, there comes a day where God is obviously amongst us, and everyone can recognize it, and everyone can see it. God is here amongst all of us. I hope that gives you courage to live courageously this week. Don't worry. <laughs> Be happy. Lift up your eyes to Him. doesn't matter too much. We get, we, we get so concerned about all these details and Actually, at the end of the day, heaven is our home. We live well now. We do the best as we can right now, absolutely, with all of our hearts, with all the gifts that we have, absolutely. But in the end, we are awaiting something far more glorious that is coming. So right now, we live joyfully, we live full, and we ask God to produce in us that fruit that becomes obvious to everyone as we live by the power of the Spirit. Everyone says, Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you again for the privilege of your words. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for these simple encouragements from a man who lived thousands of years ago that are still so relevant to us. Thank you that your spirit makes all things new in our lives. And I just pray for every single person here this morning, those in our church family that are not here today. God, we pray that as we seek to live well in these difficult times, that we would live by the power of the Spirit, that you would, be, would produce fruit in us that is so obvious to people that whatever they think about what we believe, they would have to acknowledge the fruit that they see. And Lord, we just ask that through that, many people would come to know you. Many people would come into your kingdom. Many people would be saved as we simply point people to you, the living Christ. So I pray for my friends, everyone here now, Lord, we, we want to ask that you would empower us. We, we can't do this by ourselves, but Lord, as your Spirit is upon us and within us, you enable us day by day. Help us uh, to keep our eyes on Jesus. Help us to, in our moments that we are down, to lift up our eyes to him, that he might exalt us in due time. And so we bless you, Lord, for all that you've done this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you continue to encourage us as we simply have coffee together, as we pray for each other. Lord, thank you that encouragement comes, strength comes from your people as well. And so we bless you for the joy of friendship, the joy of knowing each other. And we thank you for being able to spend time together now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.